but I'm recording now. So okay. wonderful. Today on My Wax Museum, I'm joined by my good friend, Cindy Russell. Cindy's got an awesome story, and I'm excited to share it with you, but I'm especially excited to share our conversation on mental health. There are people in your life around you now who may need you to lend a listening ear. And maybe you're the one who needs to talk. In that case, find someone you can open up to. Trust me, getting it out helps. Cindy Russell, welcome to My Wax Museum. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, I always start off the show with where we know each other from, how we know each other. Well, um, I met Alex when I was working at the uh, Centennial Release Time Seminary Program. I started working there in October, November 2013. Holy cow, yeah. I know. Wait, what grade would you have been in? 10? 11, I think. 11, yeah. Yeah. Um, And I worked there from November 2013 until June 2015. So you were there... Like the same time I was there, yeah. Where they, because because I was there until you would have been done grade twelve, but you weren't at Centennial. Were no, you? yeah, no. no. Uh, but you would come to seminary and then you would come hang out at the building. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was always very impressed because it's interesting. I there's so many people my age that are intimidated by teenagers. Yeah, they're like, oh my gosh, I hate teenagers. <laughs> yeah. And I don't. I really like teenagers. Really? But I realize I like teenagers that are confident and friendly. <laughs> so yeah. maybe I can't say I love teenagers because there's definitely like a caveat. And you were always very friendly and very confident. So you would come in and you'd be like, hey, Sister Russell, and we would talk. And so yeah. you, you, Elise Burton was another one. And she comes and visits me yeah. here uh, at the building, which is cool. Um yeah, so there was there's just a few sort of outliers that I remember of students that would like come in and would chat and yeah, you were definitely one of them. Yeah, that's awesome. Because uh, I remember I remember having chats with you all the time. I yeah. mean, I was lazily doing online <laughs> school. Uh, no confessions onto how well that went, uh, but uh, but yeah, I always loved coming in and chatting with you a little bit. Well, I was always very, and I don't know if this is like to start the show off, but I will say I was always very impressed because I thought that you had like an entrepreneurial spirit. You had things that you wanted to do. Like you were, you weren't just sort of passive, you know, oh, whatever. I don't know what I want. Like you knew exactly what you wanted to do. Yeah. And you're willing to work really hard. And I'm impressed that, you know, this time has gone by. Wow. It's like five years, years, almost, almost six years. Yeah. And you're still in that mindset. And I think that that's super cool. And you've worked really hard. Like you're in school and you're, you know, paying your dues. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm very excited to see, oh, the places you'll go. Yeah, classic. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. So uh, where let's let's jump into you to and me. this conversation. Sure. Um and and why don't you start with where you were born? Well, I was born, technically I was born in Calgary. Um, and I just found out yesterday that I say it differently than other people. You say Calgary? I say Calgary, and everyone's like, it's Calgary. And I'm like, isn't that what I said? But well, I hear they, the difference now. Yeah. I do say Calgary. So yeah. anyways. I, yeah, I used to say it Calgary. Yeah. And people were like, 
oh, only foreigners say Calgary. Yeah, because that's and how I'm it's thinking, supposed to be what? said, right? Like, in my yeah. mind, I'm like, if you go back to Scottish roots, which is where I'm pretty sure the word Calgary yeah. comes from, yeah. I think I'm saying it properly. Anyways, yeah. regardless. That's a thing for another time. Another time. Um, I was born here, and uh, my family was living in Hannah, Alberta at the time. But okay. when my, so I'm the youngest of seven kids. Oh, yeah. And, I know uh, your older brother. I know Thomas. Oh, you know Thomas. Yeah. yeah. So we, my family had moved to Hannah uh, earlier in the year that I was born. <clears throat> I was born in November. I think they moved there in the spring or summer. And um, when my mom went into labor with me, they packed up the whole family and drove to Calgary because she didn't want to have me Are you serious? <laughs> in a rural hospital. That's what I think. I think that's how the story goes. Is that Really? I don't know if I don't know what the the circumstances were, but we were living in Hannah. But when my mom went into labor with me, they went into Calgary. Really? I think. Wait a minute. Maybe that's not right. Mom, if that's wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, and of course, I mean, your mom probably didn't want to give birth in the Hannah hospital because, you know, all they play is Nickelbacks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe that story's not right. <laughs> I don't know. Regardless, I grew up in Hannah. Yeah. Um, it's about an hour east of Drumheller, towards the Saskatchewan border. So that's what well, two hours from enough. Calgary. Not quite two an hour. and a half. It's about just over two hours. Like, yeah, just over two hours from Calgary. Um, and it's a town of about three thousand people. It's a kilometer square. <laughs> that's it. That's it. It's tiny. But um, it's funny because growing up there, I hated living in a small town because I felt like I was so metropolitan and I was meant for, you know, big cities, New York. I dreamed of living in New York since I was uh, very young. Really? Oh, yeah. And so Hannah, I just saw it as sort of this like rural prison and I hated it and I always complained about it. But now as an adult, I just look back and I'm so lucky but that's where I grew up. Um, because, I mean, you could ride your bike anywhere in town. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it was safe. It was small, but safe. It was one of those towns where, you know, I wouldn't say everybody knew everybody, but it, it was really safe. And so my friends, I remember in the summertime, it would be like, you'd wake up and you'd just say to your mom, like, Okay, I'm going out, and you'd be gone all day. You'd really? be gone all day. You'd just hop on your bikes, and you'd go to someone's house, and then, you know, you'd just bounce around town, bounce around friends' houses, doing fun stuff, going to the pool, going to the park, and you'd just roll in around dinner time, <laughs> and that was fine, you know. And I just think I'm lucky that I feel like I'm part of one of the last generations that got that childhood, right? Because now it's like cell phones i have to know where you are i have to know who you're with and rightly so right yeah yeah but no when i was a kid it was just like okay don't do anything stupid yeah <laughs> so, that's awesome it was pretty great and yeah. so so i mean at the time you didn't enjoy it but you look back fondly do you know what? it's funny because at the time i thought i didn't enjoy it but yeah. i did i have amazing memories i was really i i didn't realize how lucky i was um because we were one of the only member families in town. Okay. There's a few other member families in town, but there weren't a lot of youth right. uh, in the church. So 
my I had my church friends on Sunday because we went to church in Drumheller. So right. there was those friends that you would go to like mutual activities during the week. Do they still call it mutual? They don't, do they? I, I don't even know if they still like do activities. Achie- it's not achievement days. Achievement days is uh, for the eight It was primary, girls. right? Yeah. yeah. So anyways, it used to be called mutual. The young men and the young women would get together on Wednesday nights for an activity. And we would drive to Drumheller for that. So church and mutual nights were with the church friends that were from Drumheller. Right. But the rest of the week in Hannah, I didn't have member friends. And I think that... I can see the hand of the Lord in my life starting at a very young age because I've always been very impressionable yeah. and like easily influenced. And I, um, the friends that I had never pressured me to break my standards, never made fun of me because my standards stood up for me and my standards. Yeah. And they taught me that it's okay to be myself, which is sort of this amalgamation of, member of the church and citizen of the world like right. i they just help me strike a balance that i really enjoy in my life where I, I feel like i can fit in on both sides of the fence right to some be, degree you can be yourself yeah and right. i i mean i know that that's something that people are like you can't ride the fence you have to pick a side and i'm like i think you can pick a side like i'm on the side of the lord and i'm on the side of the church yeah but i still understand what it's like to be on the other side you can go visit your neighbor yeah i have got my my what is it i've got my summer cottage in babylon that's what my dad used to say really (laughs) (laughs) which is not good i shouldn't be proud of that but yeah that so that's where that came from it came from having friends that really taught me that when it comes to connecting with people religion and politics and the rest of it it really doesn't have much to do with it yeah you know you find good people everywhere and and i did yeah yeah so yeah so how growing up in hannah and then and then continuing on yeah do you uh, here here's a question (laughs) do you consider yourself a good person oh um that's a tough question I mean, the helpful thing, we were kind of talking about this in my institute class last night, um, you know, the concept of moral relativism, right? Right. So if it's good for you, it's good. You know, right. live your truth, those kinds right. of mantras. I mean, the benefit of the gospel is that we know the standard of truth. We know this immovable compass of truth. Um, but I think that when I'm considering if I'm a good person or not, a list comes up in my mind of all the things I should be doing. Right. Or shouldn't be doing. And the truth is, is that I think should and shouldn't statements are relative Mm -hmm. if you don't have a measure to go off of. Right. So if Christ is my measure, then I am someone who desires to be a good person. Hmm. But where I fall short and where I need work, um, I, I think that he is the only person that can really know that. And I know that that's like a really churchy answer, but yeah. um, I desire to be a good person and I see lots of ways that I can improve and be better. So That's awesome. I, I think, I mean, because I've, I've asked myself that question, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's hard because I think 
from what I've uh, I've observed is that everybody wants to be a good person. Yeah. You know, like people are trying, but then when you look at it, you're like, oh, like you said, the should and shouldn't statements. You yeah. say, well, okay, well, maybe I'm not a good person because in your head you have this, I should be doing this and I shouldn't be doing that, right? Yeah. So then what... Hmm. See, I think, like, philosophically, I think that I would go so far as to say everyone is a good person. Yeah. But being a good person doesn't preclude you from being able to do bad things. And I think that there are people that get into bad habits, bad cycles, and they make bad choices. But I know it's, like, such a church answer but i don't think there are bad people ultimately hmm. i don't and so what what experiences have you had in life that have shown you that um there have been people that i put in the category of being good stellar awesome people and then when they make a choice that hurts someone else or hurts themselves or just is, is like a dark it's just a dark choice it would change the way I would think about them. Hmm. And then as time went on, I was like, well, that's not really fair because the Lord doesn't do that, right? Like right. the Lord doesn't, you are not your sins. Right. And if the gospel is true and the atonement is what it says it is, every single person is of infinite worth and infinite value to the Lord. And that doesn't fluctuate in your life. Right? Like there's nothing you can do to be less valuable to the Lord. Right. There's things you can do to be less useful to him. <laughs> right. But not less valuable and not of, of any like diminished worth. So I think that, um, I don't know, I can I can think of examples of myself, decisions that I've made that I look back on. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Or I can't believe I didn't do that. And I could see how in someone else's eyes or in someone else's story I became the villain because of what I did right and really we're just the product of the stories that people create in their minds right so right. who I am to you that's the story that you've built in your mind and who I am let's say to an ex-boyfriend <laughs> that's the story he's built in his mind and right. I could be the villain of that story right and he could categorize me as a bad person because of the choices that I made but that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Yeah. Right? Like it's all relative. Do those stories affect you? Like, like how the, other people's stories of me? Yeah. If I if I think Cindy Russell <laughs> is just the worst. And and you, like if I told myself that story about you yeah. and maybe even shared it with other people, yeah. what would that do to you? How would you take that? Uh, it would be really hard on me. And it has been in the past. Like I'm not somebody who's purposefully faced confrontation and like stood up for myself yeah. a lot. I don't do that a lot, but I have done that. And the times that I've done that and it's offended people or ruffled feathers or the times where I've been over the line in, and I have said things that I shouldn't have said or done things that I shouldn't have done and offended somebody or hurt somebody, knowing that that person thinks poorly of me, that sucks because you want so badly to fix it. But what I realized, and this is just through 
um, well, we can talk about this later, but so I have clinical depression and anxiety. And so something that I've realized through many years of like therapy and research and everything is um, when you are in a situation where you've offended someone or where somebody has taken offense to something that you've done, you feel this urge to resolve it. You're just like, oh my gosh, Mm. they can't feel bad or they can't be mad at me anymore. And so there's this desire to be like, I want to pacify. I want to make everything okay again. Right. And, and I think that that comes from a good place, but it's not right to deny a person their right to feel what they feel. And if you're so anxious to pacify the situation because you want to feel better, that's not good. Right. Right. Like, right. If you, so for example, let's say um, I get into a fight with my sister. Yeah. And I say some things that I shouldn't have said. And she gets upset. She's offended. Well, is it me or is it her that I'm trying to make feel better when I say, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to say it? Am I fishing for her to say, it's okay, because then that pacifies my anxiety? Or do I genuinely mean it? And I can say it. And if she continues to be upset, I can let that go and say, no, you, that's okay that you're upset. You feel that. Does that right. make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah. almost that, that sometimes that apology and that uh, active desire to pacify everyone is a selfish. Yeah. And I, in, in some ways, and I wouldn't say selfish in the sense of like, other greedy. people don't matter or greedy, right. but sort of that's how I anesthetize my anxiety. Right. Is people have to tell me it's okay. If they say it's okay, then I'm allowed to not feel bad anymore. And that's right. what I'm after. Right? Right. And so learning to live in the discomfort of I did something that hurt somebody and it's okay that they're mad at me and it's okay that they don't like me. Yeah. Because... If given the chance or when given the chance, I can express my remorse and my fault and whatever they do with it, that's their choice. But it has to come not from a place of desperation or urgency to make you feel better. It has to be about that humility, I think, of being like, no, that was dumb. I shouldn't have said that or I shouldn't have done that. And I do feel sorry, but I don't feel sorry to provoke your forgiveness right right is it it's kind of interesting and i don't know how one would separate the two emotions inside mm-hmm. you know like it, you have to do a lot of thinking It'd be on a it. lot and it you have to gauge the response of the person you're talking to right if they're super mad or super hurt and you keep escalating your apology and your remorse you're not doing it for them you're doing that for you because you're frantic that they feel that way. Right. And really what you can do is say, I do feel really sorry for what I've done, but I see that you're really upset. So I'm not going to try and mm. make you feel not upset. Feel it. But know that I'm sorry. And, you know, when you want to talk about it, I'm here. Huh. I, I've never... 
thought about it that much and in in that way like as a people pleaser that's something that i would do constantly really Uh, oh yeah i would just be and i still do i still do when i sense that somebody is upset i just have to make it right i have to make it right because i can't be a person that makes people feel that way yeah that's that's a statement about who i am so it kind of comes back to being about me and not being about them it's I have to maintain this status in somebody's mind. Hmm. And so how do you how do you keep that that anxiety and that fear in check? How do you like what do you personally do? It's having anxiety, especially social anxiety, which I'm realizing has kind of cropped up on me or or like crawled up on me in the past few years. I need alone time. <laughs> I need to I need to have my alone time and I I need to the people that I associate with the most I need to be able to be vulnerable with them and I need to be able to tell them I struggle with depression this is what it looks like I struggle with anxiety this is what it looks like and when I'm having a day where I'm really struggling I need to be able to to tell them what's going on and that comes with trust. So you have to find people that you are willing to build a relationship of trust with. And the only way you can build trust is by being vulnerable. And that's mm-hmm. something that's so terrifying because we're just programmed, I think, mentally to put our best foot forward always. And, you know, if we stray from the ideal, it means we're weak. It means that we're lesser, inferior. Um, but if you can step into that and just be like, I am weak, but I'm also strong and I am inferior, but I'm also superior. Like I'm in the middle, no matter where I'm at and it's okay. It's okay. So yeah, ever since I was diagnosed with depression, it was in 2008. So it's been 11 years. Um, it's a really hard beast to understand because part of me feels like, is this like, a millennial disease right. <laughs> that people have always felt, but we've put a pretty label on it. And now people are just excused from having to suck it up and get things done. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. and I hate that, that there's parts of me that feel that way, but there are, even though I have it yeah. and it's my life. Like it causes me to question when I am in a depression, I call them dips. When I'm in a depression dip, sometimes I'll question and be like, is this real? Or is this just me being entitled and bratty and lazy? Right. Right? But then it's like, no, Cindy, it's real. And the choice that you make is, I mean, you don't lose your agency. You you have the choice to do things that are going to help or you have the choice to do things that are going to make it worse. Yeah. But it's real. So what helps then? Um, reaching out. Definitely. That's the lesson that I've learned. Um mental illness is like depression I remember I I had a psychiatrist say to me once um, depression is the common cold of the mental health world Hmm. it's like it takes so many different forms it has so many different symptoms like it's just like um, and it's very common but it's sort of what's the word I'm looking for like enigmatic Right. 
right? Like it, it's hard to quantify it. It's not like you can take a blood test and be like, you have depression. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. And then you take, they give you these tests, but even tests I think are so subjective. Well, yeah, it depends on your psychiatrist. Like questionnaires, yeah. Well, I mean, if they're already sitting there thinking, this kid's just entitled, you know. Oh, yeah. Right? Or, or the second you say, I'm having trouble sleeping and I don't have a lot of motivation. Right. Oh, okay. Well, you you have depression and let's put... So it, it's just so... It is. It's so enigmatic because it's not quantifiable. Right. Um, And so things that I do to help, um, reaching out, huge that's huge. You have to have a network, family, friends, people that you trust, that when you're feeling those symptoms, you can reach out and say, I'm having a hard week. or I'm having a bad weekend. And I have that. And the hardest part about building that is you don't want people to think that you're weak. Right. And you don't want people to be burdened or irritated with you because they're like, there's some people whose attitude towards depression is like, just get over it. Just get up and go for a walk. Just yeah. eat better. Like that will make you feel better. And you're like, you're right. Those things will make me feel better. Yeah. But if you don't have the compassion and the understanding to say those things are difficult for somebody who is in a depressive state. Right. Because you're, you're in that dip. It's hard to get out. Yeah, it really right? is. And so, because I mean, you get into the dip. And and you're sitting there with zero motivation yeah. to do anything. Yeah. Right. And and like you said, you still have your agency. You can still make choices that yep. will help you. Yes. But those choices are so impaired and so much harder yes. to make. Yeah. So how do you go from zero to texting your friend saying, Hey man, life sucks right now. Can you help me out? Practice. It's practice, honestly, that time and practice, because I would say that there have been times where my depression has been severe, Mm -hmm. Um, suicidal ideation. Absolutely. When I'm in my low of lows, it it's just as natural as thinking about what I'm going to do tomorrow Hmm. to think about suicide. Um, But therapy having frank conversations with people who struggle with depression and anxiety, um, reading, but I would say, and again, like this is, I'm, I'm not trying to push an agenda here, Yeah. but I would say number one, number one, a relationship with Jesus Christ before anything else. Hmm. Um, I think that a lot of people will be worried that they have depression or say, I have depression. And I think that I I would never say that depression can be cured by praying more and fast. Like, no. Right. Real clinical depression is a chemical imbalance that needs to be treated with cognitive therapy and medication yeah. in, many, in many instances, right? It's not going to go away with prayer. But I do think that sort of the um, – as, as – Elder Holland says the vicissitudes of life, like the things that come along that knock us down. Having that relationship with Christ, it won't necessarily take away the burden, but he will give you the strength to carry it. Right. And I have relied on that more than anything else is this idea that 
I've built a, a trust relationship with Christ. Hmm. Yeah. I, I trust him. And I trust that what he wants for me is the best thing for me. I know that sounds trite, but it, it that's what gets me through, ultimately. And, and I guess having that faith, uh, that gives you a constant yeah. as well, right? It could, you know, because sometimes you'll text your friend and they won't get back to you yeah. till, or ever sometimes, right? And, uh, and so I guess having, having that faith and that trust and uh, someone to have that relationship with yeah. is so strong. Oh, and I, I used to feel frantic about people finding out that I had depression or anxiety or that I was in a dip. And there's still a part of me that thinks... If I say this, people are going to think of me as weak, as broken, as damaged. And that's especially difficult when you're single. When mm. you're an older single member of the church, you think, well, I could meet a guy, but as soon as he finds out I have depression, he's going to be like, peace. <laughs> like, right. I don't want to deal with that. And I can't blame somebody for feeling fear about it because mm -hmm. it that it is difficult. It is difficult to have a partner who struggles with depression. You have to have a lot of knowledge. You have to have a lot of patience and a lot of compassion. And so I feel like I've got this huge brand, you know, right on my forehead that's like um, defective. Like right. Defective brain, defective person. Right. And when you're in a, when you're a member of a church that has a culture that, um, vilifies being single yeah yeah i mean i'm sorry to say it that strongly but in a lot of ways it's being yeah. single is it's a choice it's the wrong choice and it's not going to lead you to exaltation right and that's what you hear but then you hear all these um platitudes again that's a strong word but that's the only word that comes to my mind yeah. that's like some of you won't have that blessing in this life but it will come have hope keep looking forward and so there's like you know these efforts to be like, well, it's okay that you're single because you will be married someday. Right. But if you were to choose to be single, that's like you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the plan of salvation. You're, you're damn rebellious. Like, yeah. yeah. And it's funny because I, I was actually having a conversation. I can't remember who it was with. but They were talking about the concept of ministering angels. And they're like, who would choose not to have a spouse and not to, like, who would choose to be a ministering angel? And I thought about it. And I'm like, I get it. I, I get why somebody would choose that. Yeah. So anyways, um, sorry. I guess I'm here to talk, but I'm talking a lot. I'm not giving you much of a chance That's to okay. talk. Um, so um, I was talking about how I would feel frantic about people knowing that I was depressed. Yeah. Especially with the frequency with which it happens, you know, yeah. that I'm like, people are just going to think I am broken and that I'm damaged. But having that relationship with Christ and letting him be that rock and that anchor and knowing that he knows me and trusting that not only do I have this condition, 
um, for a purpose, it's actually a blessing. It's, it actually enables me to do more than I could do if I didn't have it. Right. And so he helps me assign purpose to the struggle. And that like reassures me that, yeah, there will be lots of people, friends, um, guys, guys who are friends who look at me and think that I am damaged or think I feel sorry for whoever winds up with her. Right. But that it is not beyond the scope of possibility that if the Lord wants me to be married and have a family in this life, it can happen. Right. And it can happen in a way that would make me happy and would make my family happy. Right. And he's the only one that can give me that. He's the only one that can give me that hope. Hmm. And you you talking about being damaged goods, yeah. right? And, and, you know, that's kind of, I, I feel like everybody has something that labels them as such, right? And we do so much to hide it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, pe- people won't talk about their health problems. Yeah. They won't talk about their mental health issues. They won't talk about their embarrassing parents or, <laughs> you know, what, whatever. And I mean, I'm a young guy. Yeah. I go on dates and there are some things that a girl tells me about her life or her family where I'm oof not for me right and but I think what's comforting is that there are people who know how to deal with certain things right and and I mean you look at yourself you struggle with depression but you're also so much more able than to help people with depression. And and I have had innumerable opportunities to talk to people about it. I won't go so far as to say counsel because I'm not in a position where I can really do that. Right. But I have, I think because I am so open and frank about it, that there have been people who have come and said, I think that I might be struggling or I or I struggle with it too and they just want to talk about it and and I think that that is something that is an assignment the Lord has given me in my life is you're going to live with this illness you're going to struggle and in a in a lot of ways it's going to hold you back but because of it you will be able to minister in a very mm. unique and very necessary way and be ministered to in a unique and necessary way so it's very it's very intentional and I, and I appreciate it yeah that, on the good days on the good day, on the good days <laughs> on the bad not days when not you're so in the dip yeah when i'm in the dip it's like um screw you god <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. Perfect. Thanks for the sound bite. <laughs> yeah, that'll be the sound bite for the interview. Cindy Russell works at the Institute building. <laughs> <laughs> I I think I, I think it's awesome uh, how you've been able to gain that perspective and come to that understanding. When would you say that started in your life? When when did you start realizing? Oh, maybe this is okay. Maybe this is here for a reason. Um, 
I would say only recently. Um, I think it kind of lines up with teaching and teaching callings and teaching opportunities that I've had in the church. So like Gospel Doctrine, Relief Society, Seminary Institute. I have noticed the opportunities that I have had to testify of the atonement through the perspective of somebody with depression. Hmm. And I've realized that it's made me stronger right. in a lot of ways. I I don't have the capacity that I used to. Um, I used to be able to, oh man, I was, I could do so much. I could work 12 hour days and then go and do my calling and then go and hang out with friends. And like, it was incredible the amount that I could get done, the amount that I could put on my plate. But I had a pretty significant mental break in 2012 that was the result of me having way too much on my plate and um, insomnia, Hmm. wasn't sleeping. And so I just, like one day, I just broke. And I I couldn't do anything. (laughs) Like I just realized I'm like, Nope. And and it's a very real thing. You know, when people are like mental burnout, you know, oh, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'm very aware of when I see people doing what I perceive to be too much and not getting the sustenance that they need to keep moving forward. I'm like, you're going to burn out and I know what it feels like and it's terrifying. Um, so since then, I would say my capacity is significantly less. And Maybe that's just by choice that I purposely don't take on as much because I'm just so scared of that happening again. Hmm. Um, but I would say, yeah, just in the past few years, ever since I've I've been teaching, so maybe, I don't know, say like four years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting that, I mean, we we figure out our limits, right? We find those boundaries. Yeah. And... I mean, now you've learned that I don't, I don't scoop up so much because it's going to hurt. I look, you learned from your lesson. Totally. Right. And I think, I think a lot of people don't. I think that people equate their value to how much they can accomplish. Yeah. The more I can do, the better, the more of a person I am. Right. You know, um, and and I understand that idea, that ideology, and I think that there's a reason why it's so popular, and there's a reason why it continues the way that it does, is because it's very validating mm-hmm. to hear people be like, oh, "I don't know how you do it all," or "Oh my gosh, you do so much," and so that's that validation, and that's kind of, it's kind of like a drug, right? Oh, totally. Or even just the self gratification of being like, "Look what I did." oh my gosh, I'm awesome. And and not to take away anything from that because it is important to to be using our time wisely, to be productive, to be anxiously engaged. But I think that there's a higher plane that I'm not on, but there's a higher plane of understanding where you realize that it's not about the accolades of men and it's not even about the accolades of that you give yourself. You're not here to glorify yourself. Right. You're here to glorify God. And sometimes that means really small, consistent, simple things that people don't even notice or don't even attribute to being 
you know, a significant step in your progression. Right. But it is because that's exactly what Heavenly Father needs you to be doing. You know, I don't know. I just think that he's a lot. He evens the playing field and he soothes so much of the anxieties that we put upon ourselves if we understand who he is. Right. Or seek to understand who he is. Hmm. I like that you say seek because you have like it's an effort oh yeah right (laughs) yeah and and i mean obviously since you uh, you you talked about your mental break in 2012 and Mm -hmm. you know how you stopped taking so much onto your plate and and you had to make that effort because it's very easy oddly enough it's very easy to take a lot of things on yeah it's easy to be busy it's it's almost harder to have a relaxed, comfortable, happy, simple life. Well, and think about why. Why is it easy to say yes? You want to please everybody. Exactly. Yeah. Because of the little endorphin boost you get when you make somebody happy by saying, yes, I can right. do that for you. Right. Um, and and that's not a bad thing because mm. like that's service. That's ministering. That's what the Lord wants us to feel. He wants us to feel the happiness of helping people. But <laughs> I think that we're also here to to learn how to be disciples of Christ. And I think that that also means how to strike a balance. You know, I, I a lot of my friends um, had parents growing up who put their church callings in front of everything. And so... There's one family in particular that, that I don't know very well. Um, but the parents had pretty prominent callings and they would be gone multiple nights a week with these callings and their kids were doing drugs and having their boyfriends and girlfriends over to the house and sleeping together. And I'm like, there's something wrong with that. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So I think that you need to have the spirit with you and you need to be seeking to understand who heavenly father is seeking to understand who you are to him and seeking to find that balance where you're putting the right things first and sometimes that's not church Hmm. it's always heavenly father and it's always christ but it's not always church Hmm. i like that i think that's uh, and it relates to a conversation i had with somebody earlier today Hmm. um so it kind of you know <laughs> you know when all the pieces in your brain are like hmm that yeah. makes sense yeah um i love that no yeah that that's that, that's awesome is prioritizing you know your life in such a way that even the good things aren't damaging your existence your your happy life yeah. right and uh and so kind of to wrap it up here looking forward to your future and your life moving forward what what do you hope for what do you want do you have any dreams goals intentions ideas see now this is the hard thing is that if i say something then it's recorded forever and that's like the standard that i'll hold myself to if i don't accomplish it this is interesting i've had conversations about hope recently and 
I think that hope is a concept that I don't understand very well. Hmm. Um, how much time do I have? As much time as you want. <laughs> get into it. So, um, so in my in the institute class that I taught this semester, one week we taught we talked about the idea of healing, and a lot of times, so there was a, a quote from last conference, October 2018, where it was said, the Lord can heal all infirmities, physical, mental, spiritual. The Lord can heal every infirmity. And for somebody who has struggled with physical infirmities, mental infirmities, even spiritual infirmities, I've had all three, you know, significant. To hear that, it almost kind of makes me bitter because I'm like, oh, so you're saying that he can, but he just doesn't, you know? Mm. I'm like... That's kind of a jerky thing to do. You know, I asked him to heal me. I asked him to take away my depression, but he doesn't. <laughs> and so then um, I realized that I didn't understand healing the way that the Lord does. Hmm. I wasn't even close. And so I, I found another talk, and it was by uh, a nurse uh, for BYU. She did a devotional for BYU. And she talked about when she started nursing, she thought that cure... Cure, healing, and care were synonyms. She's like, they're not. Cure is not healing. Healing is not cure. And she's like, a lot of times we ask the Lord to heal us. And what we're really asking is cure me. Hmm. But when we're asking the Lord to heal us, what we're asking him to do, <laughs> I'm going to get emotional. Ah. What we're asking him to do is to help us. And to walk with us. And to help us make progress. And so my old definition of healing, I would say, no, the Lord has not healed me of my depression. I still struggle with it. But my new definition of healing, I can look back from where I started and I can see every blessing and opportunity that he's put in my way. People, programs, medication, Therapy, like all these things that I've found, and they're very different. <sighs> like I've taken many approaches and I have learned so much and I've gained so much and I am in such a better place now than I was 11 years ago. So I can say confidently, Christ has healed and will continue to heal me mm. in, in such a way that if he cured me, I would never have gained as much as I have gained. And that's what healing is. And so in talking about hope, I'm starting to realize that hope isn't just what I sit around and wish for or dream about or fantasize, you know? Right. Because I could tell you, I hope that I can be a writer. Yeah. I hope that I can, you know, get married. I hope that I can, you know, these are things I hope for. But I'm starting to understand that hope is something very different. But I don't know what. <laughs> I just know it's different than what I think it is. But I haven't I haven't grasped onto my new definition of hope yet. Interesting. So yeah. Hope wow. is not cure. <laughs> yeah. Hope is healing, and I just need to learn what that means. That's awesome. Uh this has been an awesome conversation. You, I talk so much. I do no, this every time I do a podcast and every time I do, I'm like, Cindy, you got to shut up. 
<laughs> Stop talking so much. I mean, the thing with this is I'm just here to ask questions. You I know, know the, I... the more the guest speaks, the better I've done my job. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think I really like this conversation particularly because it wasn't just a travel log of your life, right? Like yeah. we saw a few of the things you did, right? Where you're from and stuff. But we really got to get into some deeper ideas and some subjects and more more the emotional travel log yeah. of your life yeah. rather than the, oh, I went here and I went there, right? Which yeah. is fun too. Yeah. Uh, but I, I really do appreciate this conversation because like you said uh, – conversations around depression and mental illness and mental health are super important yeah, and and the people who struggle with them need to hear them and the people who don't need to hear them need to hear it too yeah you know so yeah thank you very much thank you for having me on and letting me have my little soapbox for however long we've been talking and thank you for listening it's always a blessing to have a conversation with Cindy. She leads a life that brings hope to those around her. And for that, and for her friendship, I'm grateful. Remember, now that the show is over, take some time to be a listening ear in someone else's life. Listen to their stories, hear where they're from, what their passions are. I guarantee you, you will not be disappointed. <laughs>